it truly is the old school mom and pop entrepreneurial approach to the business of skiing on steroids. You look at places like Holiday Valley, you look at what Wyndham's done and Hunter, but take your eye off the big ones for a second and look at some of these small, incredible success stories. I'm going to just ramble off. Some of them might not be household names, but Mount Peter. I mean, it is the model small ski area for learn to ski. In Thunder Ridge, they have seen numbers in their ski school and ski racing program that has just uh, ballooned over the last few years. You, you go you go a little north to uh, Platakill. Uh, people speak of Platakill like it's a cathedral with reverence. Those that know it, know it and love it. They go up to Willard and Chip Wilson and Maple Ski Ridge and Oak Mountain and Woods Valley. You know, all these smaller ski areas that are literally run by mom and pops. They're, they're run on a lot of elbow grease and a lot of hard work and a lot of praying for snow, but the, they're successful businesses. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. As anyone who follows me on Twitter knows, I hit New York hard this year. Today, we're going to go deep on New York skiing. First, your reminder to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. I also mentioned Twitter. That's my social platform of choice. If you hate it, I get it. I did too, but it's actually kind of great. So give it a try and follow me there at Storm Ski Journal. First, a quick word about my partners, Mountain Gazette and Hallie Hansen. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. The crew just shipped issue 195 and it is loaded. I cannot wait to get my copy. It has a spring skiing gallery by legendary Alta-based photographer Lee Cohen, Amanda Monti's stunning essay on the folks fighting fires in the West, a Q&A with New Hampshire governor and Waterville Valley owner Chris Sununu, an essay about the rising sun by former free skier editor Donnie O'Neill, an exploration of an upstate New York Harley-Davidson club by photographer Jason Roman, and the return of the jaded local who comes over from Powder Magazine. And that's just the start. This thing will be loaded with photos and stories from mountain towns around the country. Look, we told you last time that issue 194 would sell out, and it did. Demand for the magazine is high. We expect this next issue to sell out as well. Don't miss out. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. This episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is also brought to you in part by Helly Hansen. The brand has been making professional grade gear for more than 140 years. And listen, if you're getting excited about spring touring and summer hiking, then you need to check out their new groundbreaking Odin 9 World's Infinity Shell Jacket. This is the newest iteration of their award-winning jacket, and it features their Leafa Infinity Pro technology, which doesn't use any added chemical treatments. That means you never have to reproof your jacket. It's easier to care for and there's much less environmental impact. The best news is that this environmentally friendly upgrade did not come at the sacrifice of performance. 
Ellie Hansen has worked with search and rescue organizations around the world to make sure it has the performance these teams demand. So, if you want to get your hands on a men's or women's Odin 9 World's Infinity Shell Jacket, or anything from the brand's new spring and summer collection, visit the Helly Hansen Boston or Burlington store and mention this podcast to get 18.77% off. Why 18.77%? Because that's the year they were founded. That's right, more than 140 years ago. The Storm Skiing Podcast is going to say goodbye to Helly Hansen for now. That was a winter partnership and one that I very much appreciate. We're going to revisit that in the fall but I have checked with Helly and they will continue to honor that discount code. Now on to episode 46, Ski Areas of New York President Scott Brandy. Which U.S. state has the most ski areas? What is the only state to host the Winter Olympics two times? Where is the ski area with the tallest vertical drop in the East? The answer is the same to all three of those questions. New York. New York skiing is a funny thing. It's overshadowed by New England, which has more big mountains, more consistent snow on those big mountains, and more true resorts. The state has a few big ski areas and a lot of much, much smaller ones. There are a couple of major lake effect snow belts in New York, but they don't hit the biggest ski areas like they do right next door in Vermont. And of course, there are plenty of skiers in New York, but the ease of getting out west from New York City makes a lot of you ski snobs overlook the state's mountains entirely. That's a mistake. New York skiing is a lot of fun. The ski areas have a ton of character. Most of them, because they're a bit smaller, are not mob scenes, even on weekends and holidays. They're still affordable. And because the state's so enormous and the ski areas are so spread out, it's almost always snowing at least a little bit somewhere. You all know Gore, Whiteface, Hunter, Wyndham, Holiday Valley, maybe Bristol. But the state offers a whole lot more than that. And they're all worth checking out. Trust me, I've checked out most of them. Today, we will hear from one of the strongest advocates of New York State skiing. Let's do it. My guest today has been the president of Ski Areas of New York since 2007. Ski Areas of New York is an industry trade group representing the New York State ski industry, which has more than 50 ski areas, more than any other state. He is also president of Brandy Insurance Group, an insurance agency and consultancy dedicated to the skiing and hospitality industries. Scott Brandy is my guest. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Stuart. It's a real pleasure to be your guest. Well, Scott, let's start with the basics here. Tell us about Ski Areas of New York. What is it and how do you support your members? Well, uh, Ski Areas of New York or Ski New York is a trade association and trade associations uh, typically generate uh, their revenue to pay for the services to members through dues. But uh, one of the things we're very proud of is we have been uh, very successful in diversifying and developing multiple streams of income. So we're not just dues dependent. Um, you know, things like our kids ski free program for third and fourth graders, we'll talk about later. Um, things like um, uh, our, our license plate program. I mean, we even sell an annual poster that is very, very popular. That's uh, made by an artist that we uh, contract with. Tom Moyer out of uh, Rochester, New York, does a wonderful job. So we've developed all kinds of fun streams of income, some larger than others. We also run 
uh, a trade show, the uh, ski areas of New York, uh, Ski New York Trade Show Expo, as it's been come to know. Uh, we also do that in conjunction with Pennsylvania Ski Areas Association. And uh, that is, you know, we get anywhere depending on the season, three to 400 people, 70 vendors in booths, our associate members, that is. And it's it's a great uh, a great conference. Uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, I'd like to think that I've uh, molded that conference in my own personality and that it's a great social event. Uh, I believe in a strong educational platform, but I also believe that the networking uh, and fun has to be all part of an event. And we've uh, been very successful in in raising the fun bar at uh at our events. So this year it's going to be. Uh, uh, September 21st through 23rd in uh, Holiday Valley, uh, which is a great venue in the southern tier of New York. So we uh, there's always a lot going on. And as you know, this year certainly has, uh, has changed the playbook and we've had to be <laughs> nimble and quick on our feet as everybody else in the ski industry has to it. it. As you said, that social element and just coming together is so important. And it's good to hear that you're planning on going ahead with an in-person event this year. How did you have to modify that for last year? Were you able to do a virtual expo or did you just have to cancel it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, there were, um, I think the NSAA and ski area management really filled in the, 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 the gaps. Um, they had a lot of excellent virtual um, uh, calls. Uh, Sam had their huddles. NSAA had their calls. Um, NSA did a virtual uh, conference at uh, in, in February, I believe it was. So there, we, we didn't feel we needed to supplement um, those type of calls that were operations and, and with, with general subjects, um, so to speak. We, we felt that um, what we needed to do was have all members calls that were New York State COVID guidelines specific. And we had many, many of those calls uh, that were just our members speaking about the published guidelines, how to implement them, what the challenges were going to be, um, you know, educating our employees, educating our guests, educating local government, and educating partner businesses, restaurants, ski shops, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, it was a, a task that uh, we took very seriously, and that was really our focus on training. Um, like I said, Sam and NSAA kind of did the, the big picture and we did the New York State focus, which really is our job. So when you talk about your membership, Scott, and the folks that you spent all the offseason on these calls with, what does that membership look like? I mentioned in the intro, there's over 50 ski areas in New York State. Are all of those ski areas members? Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, I'm going to say that we represent about 95 percent of the skier visits. Um, because of the 35 members uh, we have, they, they basically develop 95% of the skier visits and probably 99% of the summer operations visits. Um, the ones that are not members, they're few and far between. Um, they are areas that operate um, intermittently and, um, you know, they just have ne never been members. They uh may be part of a town and have a rope toe, so they qualify as uh, one of those 51, 52 ski areas, but they really don't have a, a dedicated ski area operator. It might be somebody from DPW, so to speak, but if you threw uh, names at me, uh, I would guarantee nine out of 10 of the ski areas you know in the state are going to be members. 
So you're probably talking about little areas like Shroon Lake, Skeeto or Indian Lake or Dynamite Hill that just like you said, have a rope to a T-bar. In most cases, they're free. Uh, They're just sort of there as a community park. Really? That's exactly right. Uh, Dynamite Hill is a great example. Indian Hill has actually closed. I spoke to them last year, just checking up on them because they had operated intermittently. And I've spoke to their town manager and they, they are officially closed now. But That's you're exactly sad. right. The Dynamite Hills of the world, like uh, Northampton Park and uh, Powder Mills and Western New York, they're run by Swain. So they are members. Um, you know, Casanova Ski Club is a member. Skinny Atlas is a member. Um, but there are some smaller ones out there that, that are not. And uh, it's not like we don't try, but uh, they're just not, you know. So, so given the status of those as sort of just community parks that really are are good for the sport to have around, right? And they mm-hmm. they're these incubators of maybe folks who wouldn't have a ski area nearby otherwise, or the resources to do it. Well, they have a free ski When when it comes to something like COVID, when everyone's sort of like, how do we do this? Throwing their hands in the air, were you able to at least provide some guidance to them, even though they're not paying members, or is it just, or do you have to keep it? within the membership to, to maintain the integrity of the thing? How do you, how do you view that? Well, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And, and, and our philosophy has been we're only as strong as our weakest link. And everything from our lift maintenance classes, which uh, we were an industry leader in um, providing a series of lift maintenance classes that are broken down into six segments and are free to ski areas, not just in New York, but anywhere who wants to come. And we've had uh, many skiers from surrounding states attend them. They're very well known. Um, we do um, we do risk management. Uh, we have some industry leaders like uh, Mark Petrazzi and Mike Batera. Uh, we brought in uh, Dick Tapley and people that uh, are well-known names in the area of ski industry risk management. And we've done terrain park management, terrain park risk management, uh, incident investigation, and we open those, even though they're at great expense to, uh, expense to us, we open those up to any ski area in New York. So you don't have to be a member to avail yourself of our training. And people would say, well, geez, that's, uh, do, do you know, how do your members feel about that? Well, our members were kind of like uh, everybody's a third cousin, a distant third cousin, and some of us are brothers and sisters. So, you know, we invite those third cousins to all of our parties because we want them. We want to be closer to them. We want them to have the information and we want them to run uh, a better operation. Like I said, uh, you're, you're only as, as strong as your weakest link. And uh, especially when it comes to lifts and uh, risk management, I I'm, I'm really don't care much about how, how they market themselves. It's about operations and running a good, safe operation. Yeah, New York really is a standout in, in that it has so many of those little rope toes left that just have kind of died out in many parts of the country. So it's great to see that you're finding a way to support them, even though they don't have the res- resources necessarily to be an active member in the way that maybe like a Wyndham or a Holiday Valley would. Uh, I'm curious, in particular... Let me, let me stop you for a second. Let sure. me just say that on our board of directors, we have uh, many small skiers like Willard. Uh, we have Oak. We have Woods Valley. Uh, we have Mount Peter. Um, so, I mean, we, we have about 15 board members. There's, I believe we have about five that would be considered, you know, smaller ski areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, they're, they're, we're very involved. We understand what what New York's all about. And that's, you know, teaching people how to ski and, and getting families and the day skiers out. 
So we're very, very supportive of our smaller skiers. And let me just make another comment just to show you how, how accommodating we are. Um, for a, a member of, a, of, that, of the size we're talking about, like the, the rope toe areas, mm-hmm. it's $50 a year. We have to charge okay. them something. So right. it's $50 a year. And really the only reason I think some of these uh, ski areas are not members, uh, these, these rope toes, is um, it's, half the time you can't find a number for the right person. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but just I wanted to make that clear, okay? Yeah, no, no, point, point well taken. And, and it, it's funny you mentioned that it's hard to find a contact because as I was driving around New York this year skiing and, and I skied, I think, uh, 25 ski areas in New York this season, I would often do a day at uh, a place like Oak Mountain and then I would stop by Dynamite Hill on my way home, right? And, and it, was, it was a process always to figure out, okay, is it open? And, and typically, the key seems to be they, they, most of them can't support a website, but they, they all have Facebook groups that are updated pretty regularly. So, so that's usually my kind of uh, a go-to spot when I can't figure anything else. I'm like, okay, let me try Facebook. And nine times out of 10, they're on there. That's a, that's a really good tip. You know, and another thing that a lot of people don't realize is Dynamite Hill, at least last I heard, it was free. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I walked in there and uh, I was like, can I buy a lift ticket? She's like, oh, no, it's free. I was like, okay, can I make a donation? And they had a jar there. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, threw it's, a little cash in the jar and took a couple of runs. Right? I mean, yeah. if, you live in, if you live in Glens Falls, Saratoga, mm-hmm. and you've got a family and you want to get out and just uh, do some, you know, introduction to skiing, make a couple of runs with your kids. No perfect place. Yeah, no, it, it was it was terrific, and uh, it, it was usually you don't see this, but half of the hill uh, is a sled hill, and right. and that was really busy. I think I was the only one skiing there. It was a Friday afternoon. I think I was just kind of beat everyone. They were still getting out of work, but uh, but that was a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> That's beautiful. I, 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 I have a very specific question about your membership here, Scott, and it, it's a, it's around Hunter Mountain. Uh, vale famously pulled out of Ski Colorado several years ago with their five ski areas out there. Have you seen any indication now that Vail owns Hunter that they would pull out of Ski New York, or do they seem committed to the organization? Well, well, they seem committed to the organization. And, you know, there's been, um, I could also look at uh, Peak Resorts and them not supporting Ski New Hampshire uh, recently until, of course, they were sold to Vail. Um, I, I believe that the underlying issue was marketing and the amount of funds that the respective associations were spending on marketing. And uh, Vail, to the best of my knowledge, my understanding of the situation, felt that they could spend the money they were paying to the association more effectively by investing it in their own marketing program. And I believe it was the same situation with the Peak Resorts and uh, Ski New Hampshire. Um, you know, some associations... Um, marketing plays a bigger role in, in our mission statement. Um, marketing is uh, the, the last of our priorities. So um, we feel it's up to, I think I mentioned this earlier, I mean, we, we really um, we get involved in marketing when we're successful in getting uh, I Love New York Empire State Development grants. Uh, we're actually working on one right now. And what we do is um, we try to promote grow the sport type programs, learn to ski and our third and fourth grade programs. So that, that's where we spend, if we're to get 150000 from the state, uh, that's where we'll spend our money. Uh, we recently got a grant. We redid the 
Um, Kids Ski Free, they're in the fourth grade program website. It's a dynamite website, easy to use. It's got a real modern feel to it. So I think that was a good investment for the next few years until it has to get done again. So, Yeah, it's interesting as, as you're deciding where to allocate dollars and as you talk about your mission statement, you've been president there now since 2007. So that's a good long run. That's, that's a long enough time to see something change. So just curious, Scott, how has Ski New York uh, and its mission evolved over your tenure? Well, when I, uh, I'll be very frank. When we took over the organization, when I took over the organization, the organization was running um, in the red. And uh, that was my number one goal and a commitment I made to the board that I wanted to have a general fund balance. We needed to have money put away for, well, what happened this past year. Um, and uh, we started looking at multiple streams of income. We started looking at things that weren't being run profitably, things that we did and figuring out how we can do them profitably. Um, uh, so we did a lot of things to, to develop multiple streams of incomes. You know, like I mentioned, the New York State ski plate, uh, that brings in a few thousand dollars every year. Not a lot, but it does. We sell some logoed clothing. Not a lot, but it brings in revenue. Our poster uh, program is uh, a, a home run. Uh, people love it. People have the whole series. We've been doing it for eight years, nice. nine years. Uh, so we have a lot of multiple streams. Our expo makes a fair amount of money. So that was number one, is to identify a profitable organization, um, get out of this mentality of running to a deficit or a zero balance, and try to put money away. And we've been very, very successful in doing that. Uh, we have a sizable fund balance, which will ensure the organization will be successful well into the future. The other things that we identified was we did our mission statement. Um, advocacy uh, is our number one priority. Um, new York State, as you well know, Stuart, you live in New York, uh, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so you know what goes on in Albany and what has been going on. There's been quite a change in the uh, makeup of our government and the assembly. It used to be the Senate was Republican and the assembly was Democrat. And the governor uh, played on both sides of the aisle. And uh, now in New York State, it's uh, uh, very, very heavily uh, Democrat, uh, even left of Democrat. And uh, there's been a lot of bills that are, you know, session ends on June 10th. And there's a lot of bills out there that are not business friendly, uh, that, you know, start out with good intentions and then get so much added to them. Uh, that they're very detrimental to small businesses and running a business in New York State. So there's a lot of concerns there. And as a result, uh, we are uh, it, we, we retain, we engage uh, the number one lobbying firm in the country at great expense. I'm a registered lobbyist. Um, I work very closely with them. Um, and uh, we do a lot of calls with senators and uh, assembly members, uh, government staff, governor's staff. And, and we'll talk about this a little bit later and how this does pay dividends when you need help um, specific to COVID. So uh, that's our, our number uh, two or number one. And number two was, is education. As I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm a, you know, coming out of the insurance and risk management industry and haven't been insuring ski areas since uh, 1985. I was based out in Colorado for a number of years. Um, you, you get that in your blood and you understand that, uh, you know, we're, we're a regulated business and the uh, best way to get over-regulated is to bring your industry to their attention. You know, as Reagan said, uh, 
you know, I'm the government and I'm here to help you. Well, we don't ever want to get into that situation. We want to um, be so proactive. You know, you know, let me say this, Stuart. I, 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 uh, I do a call every other Thursday now. It was every Thursday with uh, about 15, 16 other state associations. It's a wonderful call. Uh, our group leader is uh, Mike Rensel from California and Kelly Pollack from the NSAA is always on it and Dave Bird and, and others. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it comes out, you know, we just were dealing with some situations and we're talking about it. And some, some, sometimes we kind of put our tail between our legs and we say, oh, Jesus, it's industry so hard. And what are we going to do? And, and, and I'm always one of look at what we've done. Look at where this industry's been and where it is today. Let's start with uh, lift maintenance and, and lift safety. Um, where it was in the 80s, there, were, there was a couple of rollbacks and incidents uh, every, every winter, and now they are so few and far between. Um, and when they do happen, we self-police and we communicate and um, we get right on these issues. Uh, look at uh, lower leg injuries, you know, with bindings and, 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 and shaped skis and um, terrain parks. Uh, they started out and, and we saw the issues and we, we regulated and trained and uh, came up with all kinds of guidelines. So, you know, it's, it's one thing after another. I can continually cite uh, our industry's response to um, exposures and potential problems has always been an industry response. And it's, it's a remarkable industry in that we really focus on that. If, if we're not running a safe operation, uh, the whole industry is at jeopardy. That's remarkable that you can share that information and and best practices with your fellows and these other state associations and with the NSAA. I want to rewind a little bit here, Scott. You mentioned some pending bills in the New York uh, legislature that would negatively impact small businesses, including small ski areas. Can you articulate some of these bills for us that would have an impact directly on some of these ski areas that we know in New York State that could be considered small businesses? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to get a lot of detail on this, but um, I can tell you um, we had a board call last week and we went over these. We actually had our lobbyist on the call. Um, uh, one bill, uh, I don't want to articulate it details incorrectly, but in general, um, it uh, allows uh, an employee to sue the employer um, for unsafe workplace practices. Um, and, and this is, it's very, uh, open-ended as to what they can sue for and how the process, uh, it's not a typical court process. Um, and I really can't articulate much more besides that. The other one, um, has to do with safe workplace and it, um, it essentially, uh, talks about, um, airborne illness in the workplace. And if the employee feels the uh, workplace isn't safe, um, they could sue, they can go outside the typical remedy of workers' compensation and bring suit directly to the employer. Um, so, you know, they're, 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 they're bills that are in response to um, um, some of them are in response to COVID and some of them are just in response to a um, protecting the workforce and giving the workforce more rights. And so what's the industry's response to this? Because as you've said several times, 
everyone is invested in having a safe workplace, right? Nobody wants anyone to get hurt at work. So, so what's your, what, what is your collective response to this? Instead of this bill, what, what is it that would accomplish the same thing in a different way? Well, what you, what you try to do when you see a bill that uh, is gaining momentum and it's not a business friendly bill, it does, it's not a, you know, it, it's not that, um, all bills that aren't business friendly are bad bills. We, we don't look at it that way. Uh, we, we try to identify bills that uh, may be poorly written and uh, have good intentions, but end up with uh, uh, some very restrictive and, and uh, oppressive demands, uh, unfunded mandates, um, and so on, on on the businesses and that they're, they're trying to regulate. And, uh, so what you try to do is you uh, the, the procedure in lobbying is to make your uh, dissatisfaction known. Uh, we have a network of associations we work with, starting with the New York uh, State Business Council and tourism and industry associations and like smaller associations like us, like campgrounds and golf. And uh, so we try to work together. We individually, individually will give people, uh, educate people on our, our opposition position and why. Uh, if the bill passes, with, uh, gets through, and regardless of our opposition, then you try to uh, influence the second floor, the governor's office, before he signs it. Maybe you uh, try to influence them to try to veto it, uh, or you try to get amendments uh, bill, amendments to the bill uh, put in. And, uh, you know, that would make the bill more friendly and uh, make adjustments to the bill that would make sense not only for uh in this case, labor, but also for um, the employer. And uh, if the bill goes through, um, then it was interesting because even if a bill goes through, that's an onerous bill, like a couple of the bills I mentioned earlier, um, then, you know, these bills, what happens is a bill gets put through and it doesn't have all of the provisions in it. So it gets assigned to an agency that's going to be the agency of authority for, let's say, say, for example, the Department of Health, the Department of Labor. And then you try to work with that respective agency to try to get the rules crafted so they, they, they make sense. So they're, you know, okay, the, this is the intent of the bill. This is what it says. Now these are the rules. Let's try to make the rules so we can enforce them realistically. You can enforce them realistically. And let's try to make the penalties um, you know, some of these bills, you know, the penalty threat is, well, we're going to shut down that business. Well, obviously, that's something we fight and, and, and hopefully in most cases would win. But, you know, that, that's the, sta- the, the, the stages of, of uh, what we try to do and how we try to intervene. And like I said, we're in session right now and we're in session until June 10th. So it's a daily it's a daily battle. It takes up a lot of our time and, and finances. So it sounds like the ski industry has a very able partner. Uh, working with the government to 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 further its best interests. So it sounds like that's part of the way that you've evolved and shaped the mission of Ski New York in the last 14 years. Uh, looking separately at the ski industry, it has changed a lot and it's changed very quickly. Um, what were the issues you were dealing with in the skiing world when you signed on, and how have those issues evolved to today? Or you know, putting COVID aside, obviously that was probably the big thing that took up all of your attention for a while, but. Are, is it basically the same basket of issues that you were facing in 2007, or, or is it a different evolved set of issues? 
Oh, wow. That's a good question. And, and I'm, I'm racking my brain thinking back that far. Sometimes I have trouble remembering what happened last week. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously. Um, I, I think, um, you know, uh, the industry is so complex. There's so many moving parts. Um, I, I refer to, you know, the general manager, some of our large ski areas as being mayors of small towns because they deal with everything from water to sewer to lodging, um, security, daycare, uphill transportation, uh, you name it, F and B, go on and on. Um, very challenging and diverse organizations like running a town. Um, and, you know, I remember early on there was a, a lift incident at a ski area in, a, in, an, in another state. And right away I looked at that and I saw the press response to it and, you know, how immediate that is these days mm -hmm. and how ill-prepared they were in dealing with it and how the thing got out of control. And I thought to myself, how would we have answered those questions? And I'd like to think that we would have tried our best but we would have been in the same boat because we didn't have the right answers. Mm -hmm. And so right away we started our uh, lift maintenance program, which now is an industry, I'd like to think an industry model. A lot of other States have done it, uh, something similar, uh, you know, sometimes bigger and better uh, depending on the state. So, um, so that's something that, you know, just happened that, that made you get introspective, like any good business, uh, you look at it, you say, okay, what if let's do something better? So let's, let's put together a real program where we can identify, um, how we train our employees, what we, uh, what the curriculum is uh, that we're talking about lift maintenance and operations and, um, you know, have a real professional response and put a lot of people through this program effectively. And, that, you know, that's what we did. A lot of resources. Uh, we had uh, leaders like Tom Sanford uh, from recently retired, but from Doppelmeyer and our ski area leadership in lift maintenance, the men and women that run uh, lift operations and lift maintenance departments at ski areas throughout the state, small and large, um, stepped up and actually stepped, you know, stepped out of the box, their circle of comfort. And these guys are now teaching the classes. Mm. I just, just been a fantastic program. But there's a long winded example of something that we, we didn't plan for that we responded to, you know, other things, um, you know, you, you made the comment before about, you know, veil buying Hunter in some States, that's been a real problem in trying to um, deal with uh, you know, where you once had five independents, you now have, have all five of those are being run by Vale, and it, it's it's a whole different flavor. It's a it's, it's a game changer, and uh, you know we have that you know in Pennsylvania and some other states. Um, you know we to this day, um, you know I live in Hunter in the winter. I've always had a close relationship uh, with our friends at Hunter. Uh, Russ Colton serves on our board and on our legislative uh, as a chairman of a legislative committee. And I'd like to think that uh, Vale has looked at what we're doing and what we're providing and using Russ as a conduit, and they're happy with what we're, we're doing for them. Again, I think the legislative and our response to COVID 
uh, was an industry leading response. And I think that got their attention. And, and, you know, another thing I want to add is in our conversation before we were talking about government, you know, mm-hmm. what, what, you know, I'm with the government, how can I help? Well, there are situations where they do help. And a lot of that comes from developing relationships, not just working with the government um, when things are bad, but working with them all the time and having relationships with, uh, with certain leader, leaders in both the Senate and the Assembly, and certainly having relationships with the key staffers in the governor's office. And I'll give you an example. In 2018, um, we identified NYSERDA, uh, New York State Energy and Research Agency, um, it, it's a, a arm of the government. We, uh, we, we understood that NYSERDA had some money for energy efficient equipment. So we went to them and we educated them about energy efficiency uh, for old snowmaking equipment compared to state of the art, today's 2018-19 snowmaking equipment. And um, working with them, we developed a program. We got $5 million of funding, maximum of $300,000 per ski area. And we used up the entire $5 million and every ski area that applied got something uh, got what they asked for. Some areas only needed 50,000 if they were small and they wanted to buy, you know, uh, five fan guns, um, or, or 20, uh, you know, pole, pole guns. Um, but the program was incredibly successful and we have reapplied, uh, for that program. There's some funding in the governor's budget this year. And, uh, we are, we are reapplying for that as well. Another example I want to give is ESD funding. I mentioned marketing funding. Um, there is a pot of money for that this year. You know, now, now that we got funded by the federal government, uh, we have some money. Otherwise, it would have been a mess this year uh, coming out of COVID. But we are, uh, are going to be looking for a few hundred thousand dollars there um, to kickstart our programs for uh, the 21-22 uh, season. Yeah, when I hosted the owners of Platykill on the show, they mentioned those energy-efficient guns and what a big help that was for a small family-owned ski area like that to be able to install that technology, not just to expand the snowmaking they have on the hill, but to be able to run their operation more efficiently into the future. Music to my ears. <laughs> so let's talk about your ski areas here, Scott. I, I see numbers all over the place about the definitive number of ski areas uh, in New York State. The NSA counted 51 last season. My personal count is closer to 55. Uh, what is Ski New York's count on the number of ski areas in New York? I get that question from a lot of people. Uh, and I got to tell you, Stuart, my answer is, if it's at 50 or above, I'm happy. I don't want to fall <laughs> below 50. That's the magic number, right? Yep. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I love New York. Uh, Ask me every year to verify it. And every few years, the NSAA verifies their numbers. And I believe we we're at 51. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I, next time I count, I'm going to call you. <laughs> I, I can send you my list and, and you can tell me which ones are wrong. I'd love I'm to sure your list. Yes, I'll, you email it to me. <laughs> I'll send it to you after this call. So you had, awesome. so for this past season, uh, specifically citing COVID, you had three ski areas that I'm aware of. There may be more um, that voluntarily sat out. And by my count, that was Northampton, Valbialis, and Villa Roma. Are you aware of any others aside from those three in the state that sat out this past season? Uh, no, but I can give you a Villa Roma, as you know, runs a ski hill that's part of their hotel operations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's an amenity 
to the hotel, even though you can buy a lift ticket. And I believe Villa Roma didn't operate um, or their limitations in operations were specific to the operations of the hotel. Okay. So, okay. and I can tell you that uh, Big Val over in Utica, uh, the gentleman, Mark Ford, who was running it, did not renew his contract. Mm. Okay. And they've been exploring all the different ways. Uh, have you ever skied there? No, no. I was hoping oh. to stop by this year, but it was closed. Well, I'll tell you, if 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 it, uh, let's hope they reopen because that run underneath their chair is just fantastic. Yeah, it's uh, it's got a great feel, and you get the whole valley, you know, the north face, mm-hmm. and the whole valley out below you. It's a, it's a pretty cool little hill. Is that owned by the town? Yes, owned by the city of Utica. Okay, and they need an operator. Yeah, their uh, formula uh, was to bring in a third-party operator. They did that, and uh, the, the gentleman who tried it failed. And then Mark Ford, who's a local businessman, heck of a guy, decided that he wanted to have the skier operate, and he ran it for three years, gave it a, gave it a real uh, solid effort. But, uh, you know, there was no snow. They really don't have enough water to make snow. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do have water there at the base, but only a couple of hydrants. They really can't get the snow up the hill. So that's what he was fighting. All right, listeners, you heard that. If you want a challenge up in New York, you can uh, try to resuscitate that ski area. Um, hey, if anybody wants to uh, wants a challenge and wants to open up a ski area, call me because I know a couple that, you know, we got to dust them off, paint them up, clean them up. But, you know, what better way to spend your winters? <laughs> well, you know, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about that. You know, the, there are uh, quite a few ski areas that have gone out of business in the state in the past fifteen to twenty years. That you know, they haven't quite faded back into the forest yet. They still have their infrastructure there. God knows if it still works. But um, you know, we have Tuxedo Ridge, Bobcat, Cortina, Big Tupper, Hickory. These places are still, you know, more or less what they were when they closed. Uh, we have seen a local group come up with a plan to try and revitalize Big Tupper recently. Occasionally, we see Hickory pop up into the news. Uh, do you see a path forward for any of these that I mentioned, or are there other ones you had in mind that you just mentioned that could be revitalized if the right person came along? Well, let me. Uh, that's interesting because I, uh, I have an affinity for old uh, yester ski areas and. And uh, you know, I, I whenever I drive by what was a ski area, I tend to stop and go kick whatever tires are left. Uh, you know, Hickory Hill um, really doesn't have any snowmaking, and Hickory Hill would take a uh, would need a huge capital infusion uh, because they don't have any uh, pump system, pipe system, uh, anything, and the surface lifts are kind of a thing of the past. Those uh, old pommels they have there. So uh, I don't see Hickory, um, you know, people people still hike it and ski it uh, on, a, on a good natural snow day, but I don't see it being any more than that. Uh, Big Tupper, yes, there is a business group of uh, some very hardworking, dedicated citizens up in Tupper Lake. Uh, I've had a couple of conversations with them. Uh, these are very, very passionate people, and they recognize that the future for um, – the Tri Lakes area, but but specifically Tupper Lakes, sitting there in the far west of that region, um, is tourism, and they need to come up with uh, uh, tourism uh, specific outdoor activities. We see the uh, the demand for outdoor activities coming out of COVID, whether it's hiking or skiing or mountain biking, whatever it may be, and uh, you know they also see the need for um, 
place for people to sleep, uh, adequate lodging. So they're working really hard. I think Big Tupper, of, of all the ski areas that were closed in the last five to 10 years, probably has the best chance to uh, reopen of, of any of the ones I know. You know, some of the other ones like uh, Tuxedo Ridge, I mean, that's been repurposed uh, to some degree. You know, one of the challenges you have, Stuart, is uh, when the lifts are closed for a while, the equipment does deteriorate. And then, of course, Department of Labor has different rules and regulations to bring equipment up to speed if it's been shut down and not used for public use for a while. And then you have to go through the whole process of updating the equipment, doing load tests. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, how, like like anything, you, you, know, you park a tractor in the field after a while, it's not going to start, you know. Yeah. Are there any others in the state that I didn't mention that you think would be candidates for revitalization? Hmm. Uh, nothing else jumps out at me. I, I really think Big Tupper has the best chance. Um, hmm. No, I think I think that's probably probably it. I mean, every time everybody who passes on uh, outside of Little Falls on the uh, on the throughway, you look to the left and you ski uh, see uh, Schumacher Mountain, mm-hmm. and you see the old hall lift sitting there, and it's like, oh my God, it looks like they're ready to be turned on. Right? But, uh, <laughs> You know, I was amazed when that area closed about 25 years ago um, that those lifts were never repurposed, that they were never purchased because they, they were operating and then it turned them off and there they sit. You know? Is it just private property? Private property, yeah. Yeah, that's the case with Bobcat as well. It's just sitting there. You can't go on it and uh, and they just have no interest in revitalizing it. So um, one lost New York ski area did come back last season, Cocaine in Western yeah. New York. That was awesome. Uh, they closed after the lot. Yeah, it was it was amazing. They they had been closed for ten years since their lodge burned down in twenty eleven. Uh, what could people who are looking to revitalize some of these lost New York ski areas learn from the revitalization of Cocaine? Well, let me be blunt. First, you need a passion that exceeds your cash on hand. Um. <laughs> What I mean by that, and I, you know, it sounds funny, but I'm not trying to be funny, is some of the money you're going to spend is not going to make a lot of sense. So your capital has to exceed your rationale when it comes to how you're going to spend your money. The ski industry is very capital intensive. And, um, you know, everything from snowmaking infrastructure to lifts to, to your base lodge. Um, grooming equipment. I mean, I, you remember the days of Tucker Snowcats and yeah. selling for twenty five thousand dollars. But you know, and now you want to buy a state of the art cat, cat? It's four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Unbelievable. So, you know, uh, you got to go in with a lot of passion and desire, and uh, a lot of money. Well, it's uh, the 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 first is in no shortage of supply. It's the money I think that a lot of folks really need and and dealing with the permitting and all that in New York. Uh, Scott, you recently told Ski Magazine that you expect New York, ski, New York ski areas to collectively report close to 4 million skier visits for this past season. Uh, is that still your estimate, and would that be a record? Uh, it, it may be a record. Um, I certainly hope we hit 4 million. Uh, our questionnaires are going out next week. Uh, that number was based upon input from many ski areas verbally. Uh, what we found is in New York, the demand for outdoor low-risk 
activities uh, was well beyond what we anticipated. Um, even though we had capacity limitations, um, those typically slower times, midweek, night skiing midweek, um, were, ca were, were capped. They were all at capacity. Um, we operated uh, at capacity, 75% capacity. It was our outdoor rule, 50% indoor. Uh, we operated at capacity pretty much nonstop all year. And uh, we had, you know, many ski areas hit 100, 110, 120 days of operations. So uh, it was it was a heck of a year. And you know what I'm most proud of? I mean, we operated, we operated successfully. And yes, we had some situations where we had some employee spikes with COVID, but we didn't have one guest COVID incident. Mm. And, uh, you know, when speaking with the NSAA, uh, when that came up, you know, how proud we are in our respective state. But I don't believe we had one nationally. Wow. So the ski industry did a hell of a job. And, uh, you know, my hat's off to the NSAA and the work they did in leading the way with the Ski Well, Be Well. Um, you know, it, uh, it, it paved the way for a very successful season. You know, and another thing that um, helped us in New York is – you know, New York is set up, as you know, with 50 ski areas. But what's interesting about New York is these ski areas are geographically dispersed mm -hmm. fairly evenly throughout the state. So yeah. with the exception of Long Island, you pretty much have a ski area less than two hours from your house. Mm -hmm. And that's what people were doing. They were staying closer to home. They were driving. And, of course, Vermont was in a shutdown state all season. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of the skiers uh, made a left instead of going north yep. and, skied, and skied in New York. So. Yeah, it's funny. I'm down in Brooklyn and uh, the, the four Catskill ski areas, Bel Air, Platykill, Wyndham and Hunter are sort of the go-tos for people in the metro region. And mm -hmm. all four of them were sold out every weekend. And I'd be getting all these texts from my friends who don't ski that much like, hey, where, where do we go? I'm like, you should have thought of this about three weeks ago because these things are, are selling out because everyone has the same idea you do, especially that period. We had that awesome period, Scott, from about the second week in January to the end of February when it just snowed. Every day, somewhere. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know, you know Stuart, you, you're, you're a smart guy. You just hit it on the head. Um, I had people call me and say, I can't believe the price of, of this lift ticket. I want to go ski X ski area, and the price is $120. I said, look, just like dealing with uh, capacity issues mm -hmm. and being sold out, you can make an advance reservations three weeks in advance, guarantee yourself a spot on a lift, and get it for like 30, 40% off yeah. the price a couple of days before, if it's yep. available. So you not only guarantee your spot by doing an advanced uh, reservation, but you're going to get kind of like the airlines or a hotel, you're going to get a better deal. Yep. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see how ski areas evolve those into the future. When I hosted Chip Siemens on the show, he, he seemed to be a fan of the capacity limits and he said his skiers really liked it. And and they said they didn't mind higher prices. What they wanted was a better experience and capacity restrictions was one way to do that. I think Chip is spot on. Uh, I think it's something, you know, whenever you have to take a good hard look at your operations and make adjustments, not because you want to, but because you have to, um, you come out of that experience with an understanding that some of these adjustments are here to stay because they make sense 
for your guests. They make sense for your business, and uh, they get adopted. And I think we're going to see quite a few scarias adopt, um, you know, week day, weekend and holiday capacity limitations. I think you're going to see a lot of ski areas stick with advanced sales. Uh, I, the, you know, at some ski areas, the ticket window may very well be a thing of the past. Yeah. And I think that once they can actually load lifts to capacity, if you do have a little bit fewer people on the mountain, I welcome that because, it, you know, that was one of the big uh, sort of quality of life issues at say, for example, Hunter during a, a holiday weekend was, you know, just the, the swarms that would be there. And it's, it's hard to navigate and it, and it does affect your experience. But, you know, now that they've spread the mountain out a little bit with that expansion, if there's a few fewer people on the mountain, I, I won't mind that one bit. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you from a customer's perspective. Um, I agree. Yeah. So I want to shift gears here. I, I think this is underappreciated that New York has hosted the Olympics twice in 1932 and 1980. Only right. two other U.S. states have done that. Utah did in 2002. California did in 1960. Um, that's a very significant sort of feather in New York State skiing's cap. The, 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 my question for you, Scott, the Olympic Regional Development Authority has made substantial investments in these Olympic facilities, which still exist. New York was not one of these places that tore them all down as soon as the games were over. So these are now, you know, modern facilities that, and they're hosting the uh, the world. I don't know the exact name. Some some big world event games in a couple of years. Do you think New York could ever host the Winter Olympics again? Yes, I do. Um, but let me let me let me go about this first this way. Uh, the World University Games is the event um, you alluded to, mm-hmm. and that's going to be in uh, the first week of February two thousand twenty-two. And uh, I, I'm involved. Um, in a small way in that effort. Um, and I actually got to go to Kazakhstan uh, oh, cool. two years ago, three years ago to view the event. And uh, it was, uh, they did, Kazakhstan did such a great job. It was like a winter uh, Olympic event. It, it's a second in size as far as athlete participation, only to the winter Olympics. So um, it has most of the winter Olympics um, events as far as sports and um, it, it's uh, thousands of athletes and uh, and obviously uh, Lake Placid has been investing uh, I should say the Olympic Authority the state of New York has been investing substantial dollars not only in their ski facilities that many uh, of your listeners are well aware of but also in the uh, venues that, that are not so well known the jumping complex um, Mount Van Hovenberg, their cross-country complex, uh, the bobsled and luge facility, uh, have all been um, upgraded substantially to to Olympic levels. Um, so, uh, I, I I think the um, I'm, I'm projecting. All right, mm-hmm. just this is just me talking here. This is not uh, inside information. This is just me talking. I think the World University Games will be an excellent dry run. Um, for what could be um, an attempt to bring the Olympics back to New York. But the World University Games are not going to be Lake Placid-centric. There are going to be other venues in use that they're talking about, like Saranac Lake, um, like uh, Clarkston up in uh, Canton. Um, And um, 
maybe something in Plattsburgh. Uh, so they're going to be looking at regional venues centered around Lake Placid. So it has a North Country Adirondack Park um, host uh, feel to it. Now, if an, an event like the Olympics was ever to come back to Northern New York, here's what I think is I think it would have to be a regional event, but maybe even an international event, maybe mm. even incorporating, if it, if it could be done, Montreal Ooh, cool. um, into, into, I mean, you know how big the Olympics is now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, Lake Placid is, is uh, just too small in and of itself to do it. It would have to incorporate the region on a much larger scale, but it could be done. Hmm. Uh, that's a really interesting perspective. I hadn't thought of that because clearly, you know, you're, you're really Vermont is right there when you're talking about Lake Placid and, and you have all t- tons of facilities up in Quebec. So, okay, that's that's really interesting to think about. And hopefully we'll see something like that happen here within the next couple of decades. Well, and, and I hope, Stuart, your listeners keep an eye on the World University Games, mm-hmm. because if you live in New York, it's going to be an opportunity to get a feel for what a Winter Olympics type event uh, order runs an event like no one else. They're going to do a great job. Uh, they've got uh, committees. They've got uh, the North Country Sports Council, which is the lead organization running this, um, along with the international uh, organization. This is going to be a great event. We're going to need volunteers. Um, and, of course, we welcome spectators. So I think it's an event to keep on your radar and watch it. And if you have the chance to go up for a few days – you know, between if you love hockey, speed skating, uh, you know, I mean, great sports, great spectator sports, of course, skiing sports, bobsled, luge, cross country, biathlon, ski jumping. I mean, if you've never seen these sports in person, you ought to try it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I, I think I think we're all pretty anxious to get out of our houses at this point and go just <laughs> see something and be part of an event. Right. So that's right. Um, that's right. Yeah. Pretty cool. So I want to talk a little more specifically about the range of ski areas we have in the state. I, I think it's a really interesting mix. If you if you look over someplace like Vermont, they have a lot of big resorts, but for the most part, these have been bought out by out-of-state entities. And New York, I think, really stands out in that it does have some big resorts. You know, it has Hunter, it has Whiteface, it has Gore, it has Wyndham, it has Holiday Valley, but it also has among those 50 some ski areas, a lot of them are owned by families. And, and that's a model that we don't see in a lot of States. So why, why do you think Scott, that that's still a business model that's thriving in New York? Is it because these ski areas are maybe a little smaller, more manageable from a capital point of view, or, or is there just something about the character of the state that encourages it? What, what do you think it is? Well, that's that's interesting, and you make a, a really good point. And that's one of the beauties of of uh, my job is I've known the owners and operators of the New York State ski areas for thirty years. Uh, consider them all friends, and uh, it truly is uh, the the old school mom and pop entrepreneurial um, approach to the business of skiing um, on steroids. Um, you look at places like Holiday Valley with 550,000 skier visits, and you look at what Wyndham's done and Hunter. But take your eye off the big ones for a second and look at some of these small, incredible success stories. I'm going to just ramble off. Some of them might not be household words, uh, names, mm-hmm. but Mount Peter, mm-hmm. 
uh, in Warwick. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at what the Sampson family has done there. I mean, it is the model small ski area for learn to ski. Yep. I mean, free ski lessons, for heaven's sakes. They do a fantastic job. Uh, and they're loved by their community. You go a, a little bit further east over to Patterson, New York, and Thunder Ridge. Mm-hmm. Um, they have seen numbers in their ski school and ski racing program that has just uh, ballooned over the last few years. Um, you, you go you go a little north to uh, uh, Platy, Platykill. Mm-hmm. Uh, people speak of Platykill like it's a cathedral with reverence. Yep. Uh, those that know it, know it and love it. Um, and uh, what better ski couple can you have besides Danielle and Laszlo, huh? <laughs> That's right. I mean, uh, what, what, what two better passionate people can you have in this industry? Uh, you go further north, you go up to Willard and Chip Wilson and Maple Ski Ridge and Oak Mountain and Woods Valley. Um, and then, you know, Snow Ridge and Dry Hill and Four Seasons. I go on and on. I go to Buffalo Ski Club, go to Swain. You know, all these small small, smaller ski areas that are literally run by mom and pops, husband and wife teams, brother and daughter teams, father and son teams, father and daughter teams. And, you know, they're, they're, they're run on a lot of elbow grease and a lot of hard work and a lot of praying for snow, but the, they're successful businesses. And, uh, you know, and, and then I'll answer the second part of your question is why why does it look like um, this model has persevered? And I think you already answered that question because, you know, people that are looking to buy ski areas, for the most part, if, if you look backwards, um, you know, the EBITDA, the yields aren't enough um, to um, interest the, you know, the bean counters formulas. Right. You know, yeah, Holiday Valley, yeah, Bristol, Greek Peak, Hunter, Wyndham. Well, Hunter's already been purchased, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those ski areas certainly, uh, certainly would uh, measure up. But that's the minority. Uh, yeah, that's the minority of our areas. And, and I want to mention another ski area. You, you talk about a ski area that has risen almost from the ashes. They weren't quite dead yet. But uh, you look at the job that uh, Spencer and Sarah Montgomery and their investors have done up at West mountain. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, again, it, 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 took a lot of capital, but I think they spent it the right way in the right order. And, uh, that was my home mountain. Uh, I raised my family in Glens Falls mm-hmm. and we did a lot of night skiing there. That's a fantastic hill. I'm very proud of them. And to see that ski area is going to have a place in going forward in the history of, uh, future New York. Skiing. Yeah. I- I got to tell you, Scott, I think that West Mountain is the best story in New York skiing right now. And I hosted I Sarah and Spencer on the podcast recently. And the way that they just very deliberately turned that place around, it just basically did a gut renovation, you know, That's raised right. capital, $17 million over eight years, new lifts, new snowmaking, new trails. And, and they had an aspiration here. And, and I want to relate this to the larger New York ski culture and see what your opinion is of this. They really want to turn West mountain into a destination with a ski in ski out experience. And we got to talking about this and this is really something that I think is a big opportunity area for New York, because if you look outside of uh, Hunter, Wyndham, holiday Valley, maybe Greek peak, a few other areas, there's not a lot of ski in ski out in New York state. If you go to Vermont, pretty much most of the mountains are resorts, right? And you can stay right there. And I, and I understand Orta has some, you know, kind of limitations because of the land they're built on and, and it's, you know, forever wild and all that. But I think there's a big opportunity here for New York 
ski areas to build out this sort of amenity. Do you have any insights, Scott, into into why ski and ski out is so rare in New York State, and and how the ski areas could maybe start to take advantage of that gap in the marketplace to provide that experience? Yeah, um, it's that's a really good question, and there's really I don't think any easy answer. Uh, we have five ski areas that have ski in, ski out, and we have a, a ski area up in northern New York called Titus Mountain where the Monet family does a beautiful job running. Titus has a Holiday Inn Express uh, within 10 minutes of the mountain. Nice. Um, it's not ski in, ski out, but it's pretty darn close. Mm-hmm. Um, and people kind of just forget about what Titus has to offer in that area uh, of lodging. But just because it's not ski in, ski out, you know, like look at Wyndham. Wyndham has the Wynwood. It's not mm-hmm. ski in, ski out, but, um, you know, it's right across the road. Right. So, um, you know, uh, the, the ski in, ski out, you know, it may be, it may be uh, just lack of land in a lot of cases, lack of infrastructure where some of the ski areas are located, um, regulatory issues. Uh, but, you know, going back to the conversation uh, you brought up before with uh, Tupper Lake, and I really believe uh, Tupper Lake has got potential with the wild center, the natural beauty of the area and the spirit of the community. But I'm very frank with them. Uh, you got to have beds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't just build it and they will come because where are they going to sleep? Right. And uh, you got it. You got to have a plan uh, to put heads in beds. And, uh, you know, in New York's model ski areas, uh, we just spoke about, you know, the five big ski areas in the state. And then there's 45 small ones. Those models are built upon day skiers with some overnight skiers using off-site lodging and, um, you know, learn to ski, school programs, racing programs. Uh, that's pretty much the model for those ski areas. Um, so I, I, I'm just, I, I, you know, you look, at, you look at the Olympic Authority ski areas and you think of Whiteface. Everybody's like, Whiteface, Lake Placid. They go hand in hand. And we all know the legendary lodging in Lake Placid. They've got everything from you know, a super eight to the mirror, the mirror lake in, you know, yep. the wide extremes of, of experience. And, but you gotta, you know, it's, it's 15 minutes from the town. Right. And I don't know a lot of people think about that. It's an easy 15 minutes. It's certainly not a barrier because the town offers so much, but you know, there's just not a lot of ski in ski out in New York. And uh, you look at places like holiday Valley, they've made a ton of investment. Uh, with the Tamarack Lodge and other lodging, they have you know really good ski and ski out surrounding the mountain. Peak and Peak, huge hotel, huge you know, 130 room hotel right on the mountain. But outside of that, that we don't have a lot. And, and Stuart, um, I don't see us getting a lot. Hmm. I don't see there being. I think uh, West Mountain, they have the land, they have the location. They're right off the interstate. They're in that Lake George tourism area. I think they could. Uh, justify uh, four-season lodging based on where they are. But you look at the other ski areas, let's just say the 40 other ski areas in the state, um, they may sell some rooms during the three months of winter, but what else is there mm-hmm. to bring people up there to fill the, the beds? Uh, to, you know, you do it's 50, 60% capacity you require. Um, just not there. 
So we, we do have a, a lot of different ski areas and a lot of different models so they can learn from each other and, and maybe folks will see what they do at West and, and figure, uh, figure out a way to do it for themselves. Um, so, so of those ski areas we have, uh, w- w- the newest one is Peak and Peak in Bristol, which opened in 1964. Uh, you also had H Ranch opened in 1998. That's sort of a different operation. It's not a public ski area. Uh, what is the likelihood we would ever see another all-new ski area in New York State? And why is it so hard to develop one? Well, uh, there's, uh, I mean, where do I start? Uh, capital, regulatory, water, um, infrastructure. You know, there's so much required for infrastructure before you even cut a tree down. You got to look at sewer, water treatment, access, um, and and of course the the applications and and uh, you know you look at what Mike Foxman and the uh, ACR went through <clears throat> with uh, Big Tupper, and you know that was going to be a planned, you know hundreds of, of diverse lodging and uh, got shut down, really got exhausted financially by um, environmental groups, including the Sierra Club and Protect the Adirondacks. So um, you got to always have a, a pot of gold put aside to deal with any any large project that wasn't, you know, that, that's not grandfathered. You, you've got to have a large pot of gold for you know, dealing with uh, those type of objections and paying for lawyers, unfortunately, if you lose uh, Big Tupper as a model. Well, fortunately, we still have plenty of ski areas in business. And one of the big changes we've seen over the past several seasons, Scott, is the advent of these multi-mountain passes. We now have the Epic Pass in the state with Vail Buying Hunter. Wyndham joined the Icon Pass. We have five New York ski areas on the Indy Pass. Uh, we also have seen several regional combinations usually under common ownership. So Song and Labrador are now in a pass. Greek Peak and Toggenberg are now in a pass. Uh, of course, you have the Ski 3 pass for Bel Air, Gore, and Whiteface. And then Catamount, which straddles the border with Massachusetts, shares a pass with Berkshire East and Biscay there in Massachusetts. So there's tons of multi-pass options uh, for skiers. Do you think that these are these passes are good for New York skiing and New York skiers? Oh, absolutely. I, I Listen, I think the more uh, choices... And uh, options, choices we can give to our customer base, the better. Um, I love it. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of excitement about it. Um, buying a season pass, uh, I think today, where you just buy the pass at your favorite mountain and figure out when the best discount is available, today you got to go online and spend two days trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating, some of the products that are out there. The way things are priced, like we talked before about things being priced early and getting more expensive as capacity uh, is depleted. You know, I, I just think it's um, the ski industry is uh, waking up to this. And I think at the end of the day, uh, it's it's beneficial to the ski industry, but even more so uh, to our skiing public. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I think it's wonderful. And um, I, I hope it'll keep up. I think it will. I think we'll get, get more and more uh, creative. Uh, Ski New York has in the past offered a gold pass. Uh, that program was suspended this past season. But tell us about that pass and whether you expect it to return for the 2021 to 22 ski season. Well, we're not sure yet. We're going to be uh, discussing the uh, future of the gold pass. The gold pass was a fundraiser. Uh, it was, uh, we only sold 25 of them. 
Um, if we do keep the pass, and personally, I hope we do because it helps us with our uh, running our operation and investing back into the industry, um, the price was is going to go up uh, mm-hmm. uh, substantially. Because again, the Gold Pass is transferable. It's good at any uh, uh, Sandy member, you know, some 35 ski areas. And uh, it's, like I said, transferable is great. It's great for businesses. Uh, that's kind of where the purchases have been. There's been a lot of, you know, firms that have bought it and they keep it for, them, for their, their employees, for themselves and for their clientele. So um, it was selling, I believe, for $1,250. Uh, if we do keep the pass for the 2021 season, 21-22 uh, season, it'll go uh, probably to 1800 somewhere in that range. Mm. All right. Well, we'll uh, be anxious to see if that comes back. Uh, let's talk a little. Let's talk a little bit about COVID here. I'd imagine you had a very busy off season last year. Can you talk a little bit about how you worked with the NSAA and the state of New York on the various initiatives? The state of New York, of course, developed some guidelines for ski area operating. The NSAA put together Ski Well, Be Well. Uh, how did you coordinate with those organizations to help your members prepare for the season? That's a great, great question, and it's an even better story. Uh, we, I, I talked before about the good and bad of government, right? Um, th- there is a balance there, and uh, you have to develop relationships to get things done, and you have to be in the long game. And um, we started, got out of the gate really, really early, Stuart, and uh, we started meeting with the uh, powers that be on the second floor of the governor's office. Uh, in early June. Now, there's a couple of things that we, moving parts that we put together. Um, the Olympic Regional Development Authority is, is a state authority, right? Operated by the, uh, the, the autonomy of the authority, but it's a state entity. So clearly, the people at order have relationships that could help us and we could help them. Mike Pratt, who is the president and CEO, is on our board. Uh, we talk quite a bit. Um, you know, people say, you know, would you rather have a, you know, it, it's tough to compete. The public-private situation has been an issue. You know, people um, are very sensitive to it, and rightfully so. Um, I think Mike Pratt and the Olympic Authority have operated with uh, incredible integrity and uh, consideration into the public-private issue to the point where they work very hard to make it a non-issue. And that's very hard when the state is giving you hundreds of, well, $100 million for capital improvements. It's very hard to manage uh, that criticism, but I think they've done about as good as anybody. So here's a situation where we have public-private, like it or not, and we have the potential of our ski season being shut down or severely handicapped by restrictions. So we marshaled our forces, that being Mike Pratt and the Olympic Authority and myself, a lobbying firm, uh, Greenberg Terrig, and we, um, we started talking about really trying to get the ski industry viewed as a low-risk outdoor activity um, using golf uh, which was operating in that form and fashion uh, as a model and expanding on that. Clearly, we have some things that are different than golf. We have lift lines. We have uphill lifts, what the capacity of those are going to be. 
so on and so forth. You know, um, so we um, working with the NSAA. We speak with them weekly. Um, we basically took their ski well, be well model. We um, turned it into a, a New York PowerPoint, a deck that spoke specifically of New York, using a lot of their graphics and a lot of their uh, verbiage, which was excellent. They did a great job. And um, we did presentations. We talked and talked and talked. And uh, we got out in September, which was way before anybody else I know in the ski industry with set guidelines. And then we held many, many calls with our members um, to outline the guidelines, to get their input, to figure out the implementation of it, um, to try to um, figure out how we implement some things. There were some things like had to do with air exchangers, so you had to know about your building, your square footage of your building, what it required, uh, things like that. So um, we got out early. Uh, and I, I praise the government. I praise uh, Governor Cuomo's uh, staff for working so closely with us. But the key was that we got that low-risk outdoor activity designation, which is earned. And then they worked with us on how to uh, socially distance uh, with uphill transportation. Um, and obviously, we also dealt with our employee uh, regulations and how we dealt with uh, keeping our employees safe. So. I feel very fortunate that um, we got out early. We had the right team with the Olympic Authority, our um, well-connected lobbyists, and ourselves. You know, we're an industry that the state knows. Uh, the governor embraces the outdoors. He's been a supporter of the ski industry. So um, that really went a long way for us to uh, have a successful season. And you know, Scott, you were right. You got through the season without a single COVID-related shutdown in New York State. How do you feel about that? Oh, my God, that to me is the biggest accomplishment. Forget about skier visits. That's icing on the cake. But the fact, if you would have said that to me, Stuart, uh, eight months ago, I would have said, what are you smoking? There's no way, right? Right. Uh, there's no way. And, uh, you know, you know, some of the things we did, let me just say this. I think your listeners will be interested in this, you know. Uh, obviously, some skiers out west got going like every year before we did. And, and we learned from some of the things that came back to us. Like there were some infamous pictures of massive lift lines at some of these ski areas. And in some cases, they had some lift problems and there was reasons for it. But we said, okay, that's going to be a snafu. If, if we didn't realize it now, then, I mean, before we realize it now. And uh, so we worked on that and we worked on uh, maze. We actually had calls working on maze design. Uh, we had a committee, uh, you know, we had a rental shop committee, we had a ski school committee, um, we had a lift committee dealing with mazes, and, and we, we then we'd work on our committees, and then we'd bring it all back to the membership, and then we'd talk some more, and then we would come up with the best practices for the season. Well, you did a great job, and congratulations to you and all your staff on, on helping to make that happen. Um, let's let's wrap up here, Scott, by talking about some of your programs, starting with that really cool license plate program that you referred to <laughs> earlier. Tell us about that. How can we how can we get a, uh, a New York ski license plate on our rig? Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. It's one of my babies. I love it. Of course, they're on my cars. Um, you go to um, iSkiNY.com. That's our website, and I, I failed to mention it earlier, but it's uh, 
most appropriate at, now that we're at the end of the call. Uh, iskiny.com is where you could find the license plates. You could find our ski posters, the old ones, the new one. Um, you can find all the information on our kids ski free. And for you know moms and dads that are listening, um, it, it's a it's a bona fide program for third and fourth graders. Uh, they can ski free at uh, you know we have our thirty two participating ski areas. They could ski free three times at each of those areas. There's also a learn to ski component, um, and uh, we are going to be um, hopefully resurrecting that program. It had a different format during COVID, but uh, hopefully we'll be going back to the format for next season. But it's a great great product and a great program designed to get your kids out more. Yeah, I, I used it when my daughter was younger and, and we went all the time, went all over the place. And, you know, several states got suspended those programs this year, but you found a way to keep it going by essentially making it a midweek program. Um, I think under under normal circumstances, people's reaction would be, hey, you know, kids are in school midweek. But with a lot of kids at home, I imagine they had a little extra time at the end of their day. Did you see good utilization of that program? Um, it, it exceeded expectations slightly. Yes, it, it, it went over. um the utilization budget uh, by, by a little bit. We we sold about fifteen hundred. Hmm. You think okay. we would have sold more, but yeah. uh, we sold about fifteen hundred, a little bit over, uh, which was about our budget. And uh, you know, I gotta tell you, Stuart, it confound it. I, 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 I keeps me up at night as to why these programs, not just in New York, but in some of the other states, which we're privy to their numbers. It isn't more popular. And I keep, I keep on saying to myself, is it, are we not getting the word out? You know, because I, I go to ski shows and everybody knows about it. But those people that go to ski shows are skiers. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's the people that, you know, are casual users who, who we're trying to get, who we, I think this program will help them ski more, which is what we want. We want to convert them. Right. Um. So, yeah, that, that's one that I scratch my head about because the, the programs are underutilized and, and they're, they're a great tool for getting the kids out there. You know? Yeah, I tell everyone about them and most folks are not aware of them. So it's, uh, it's definitely a big opportunity area. Uh, do you plan to bring that back as a weekend program as well? Yeah, and, and thank you for your compliment. Uh, it was very important to me and uh, we had the support of our skiers. It's a legacy program that we not suspend it that we at least offer it in that fashion, knowing that the kids were going to be homeschooled a lot. Um, so I was just very happy that the ski area supported it and we, uh, we had the program. Yeah. The program doesn't su- survive as a midweek program. Uh, I think for one year, it was the proper thing to do, but the program's got to have uh, weekend utilization to be successful. Okay. Last question for you, Scott, and I'll let you go. Uh, New York ski day, typically in January, severely discounted lift tickets at a ton of really great ski areas. Could not offer that this year. Will it be coming back in 2021 to 22? Well, that's a good question. That was uh, one of my programs that I started and it went from about a thousand of utilization to about 5,000 in a few short years. And as you know, that was, I believe a Thursday. Yes. Midweek Thursday program. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to see it come back. Um, I think we can bring it back potentially um, with um, ski areas. Uh, you know, it's not mandated. This is the format. You guys can sign up. And I think we could have enough ski areas regionally in different regions to make it successful. So uh, I hope I hope we can uh, bring it back again next year, Stuart. All right. Well, best of luck to you with that, Scott. And, and really congratulations to you and, and, and everyone who operates a ski area in New York for getting through this season safely. Uh, I, I think, I, I, like I said, I skied 25 ski areas in New York. I was very impressed with uh, the safety protocols and the consistency of it and all the 
imagination that they had to to really you know completely rethink the way that they've been doing things for decades in just a few months and and get us out there and be able to give us a winter. It's quite a success story, Stuart. Thank you for recognizing it, and uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate you, Scott. That's Scott Brandy, president of the ski areas of New York. Really incredible job him and his team did helping New York ski areas prepare for this past season. New York State had some of the most explicit rules of any state as far as ski area operations during COVID went. And as we said, a lot of those are family-owned ski areas without a ton of resources. So Ski New York's role was crucial. Thanks so much for your time, Scott. Someday I'll figure out a way to make these conversations shorter. If my guests would stop saying interesting things, it would be a hell of a lot easier to do that. Thank you all for listening. Go ahead and subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com for a whole lot more content like that. If you're only listening to the podcast and you're skipping the newsletter, you're making a big mistake. The heart of the storm is the Storm Skiing newsletter. Also, follow the storm on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. That's a whole other dimension of this thing. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. Talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.